Welcome to the uh, live stream portion of uh, what we do every week at the Household of Faith in Christ. You can visit us online at householdoffaithinchrist.com. There you'll find all of our contact information, uh, links to our social media accounts, uh, links to resources, uh, links to all previous sermons and my radio show, The Faith Debate, and that sort of thing. Again, that website. Let me see if I can fix this. It's a little crooked all of a sudden. Uh, it's householdoffaithinchrist.com. Let's see if that's better. I don't know. That's going to be straight enough. If it looks like it's off center, it's probably because I am. So, <laughs> and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. That is today's preaching passage. One verse, Revelation 16, verse 16. So if you'd like to turn there, you can, but it's just one verse. It might be easy enough to, but it might be good to have the surrounding context available to you as well. Uh, and even though it is just one verse, it is part of our holy canon, part of the scriptures that are God-breathed. And so I want to remind you that God's word is authoritative for how we live, for what we believe. It is without error. It is infallible. And I would encourage all to receive it as such. Those with the ears, let them hear. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. That final word I just read, Armageddon, it has inspired much imagination. It has become almost synonymous with the apocalypse for many people. The Battle of Armageddon has become part of our cultural psyche. Just last year, there was a theatrical release titled Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway as a coming-of-age story about the American dream. More famous than that movie, the blockbuster of 1998 called Armageddon, starring Bruce Willis. And in addition to movies, there are songs about Armageddon. One of them is recorded by the late, great Hank Williams Sr. Armageddon is part of the teaching, believe it or not, in Islam, Baha'i Faith, slew of cults who bring a, uh, a wild array of views as to what the word means. And as I've mentioned a couple of times during our series in the book of Revelation, there's a very common cliche. It says that a picture is worth a thousand words. But here yet again, now we see in Revelation, in this case, a reminder that a word is oftentimes worth more than a thousand pictures. All the talk about Armageddon all the speculation, all the pop culture, the theological representations, they spring from just one word. And by this, I don't mean only that there happens to exist this really cool word that's pronounced Armageddon, but what I additionally mean is that this one word, it appears just one single time in the entire Bible. Revelation 16, 16. Sort of astounding, really, that one word used just one time should garner so much attention. So what gets talked about and even taught in churches can begin to drift pretty far afield from the original context. Because if we really wanted to badly enough, we could take this word Armageddon and we could, we could tie it to the seven bowls and then we could force an application into our particular moment in history. And doing this, we could then say something like the first bull judgment. Well, that correlates to the biological weapon that so many now simply call the jab. 
And then the second bowl, that would be something about the environment, like going green. Um, bowl three could then be about the supply chain and runaway inflation. And bowl four would have to do with, uh, I don't know, climate change and other science stuff, perhaps. Bowl five, that, well, there we could discuss governmental matters and its authoritarianism. You know, as the, the authorities like to dictate things with regards to medicine, how lives are lived, how lives are ended. <laughs> Bowl six would clearly tell us something about military powers and so possibly World War Three. And then for Bowl seven, we'll just throw in like the media or some other hot button issue that we haven't yet mentioned up until this point, some other interesting talking point. And you can see how easy it all is to to construct something based on our moment in history. And some of the examples I just mentioned would even be relevant, wouldn't they? And they would even be perhaps accurate, at least to a certain degree. Because so, we can look all around us. And we can connect what we see in our world with the horrible sores. The sores that plague those who took the jab, uh, took the mark of the beast. And this chapter's phrase, like blood from a corpse, that brings almost endless speculation possibilities. When the destruction that we witness in our world has grown to be so intense. We talked last week about whether the kings of the east that are mentioned in Revelation 16 could be Christ's armies or whether they're the enemy's armies. Well, whoever's armies they represent, they are armies. And so thinking about defense contracts, sabotaged oil pipelines, uh, tail-wagging-the-dog wars, it's all fair game, at least a little bit. All options are on the table when we see pictured the unspooling of the very creation itself. It's no accident, it seems to me anyway, that in the creation account we find in the book of Genesis, we read that God made the sun on the fourth day. And then with the fourth bowl, the fourth vial, the sun freaks out. This is what happens when the creature tells God that society prefers to be ruled by the three evil spirits that are busy uniting the world under the bizarro code. The sun goes bizarro. You play with fire, you're going to get burned. You play with propaganda, you're going to get posers pulling a bunch of puppet strings. If it weren't so frightening, it would be kind of fascinating to, to see God's sustaining hand removed from the sun, removed from the other common graces that he bestows upon us in this world, and then to just sit back like with a bucket of popcorn in our lap and, and munch away and watch the resulting consequences take place. But of course, that is not the approach or the attitude we are to take. Instead, we are to ready ourselves for Christ's return, to be prepared. And as we have talked about in recent weeks, we want to stand firm against temptation. We want to stand firm, living lives committed to God's moral standard. In what ways are you getting prepared? In what ways are you readying yourself? In what ways are you potentially being beguiled by the three unclean spirits? 
rather than being led by the example of the two faithful witnesses that we met back in Revelation chapter 11. Take honest stock of your life using scripture as your mirror. Understand that God's true wheat, it continues to grow until that day of glorious harvest. But you know what? The tares, they also appear to grow bigger and stronger, don't they? When the ways of the world are the mirror that is used. And the tares, they get harvested too. But these evil tares, they would hardly think of their harvesting as glorious. As we begin to button up this opening soliloquy, I want to add that being watchful, prepared for the end, it, it, it isn't about casually peeking out the window, splitting apart the blinds so you can see just a little bit better as you're sprawled out on the couch wearing your pajamas. It's about being busy. It's about doing with all our might the righteous acts of the saints so that we will be doing the Lord's will when he returns. You know, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, or to use a more contemporary phrase, I guess, the risk of sounding like a digital file that's stuck in a loop. What will Christ find you doing at the moment he returns? At that moment, what will he find you doing? When he comes as a thief, unexpectedly. your name is written in the book of life, then Christ has given you a pure white robe to wear. What's it look like for us when our robes are on? Well, it looks like us helping little old ladies across the street. It looks like us picking up the tab for the person who's in line behind us. It looks like us returning someone's dropped wallet. And these are all Fun concepts, you know, paying for somebody's dinner at the restaurant, even tipping something like 30%, 50% if you can afford to do that. That, that can also be fun. You know, it reminds me of a story about Jackie Gleason. You know, younger folks might not know too much about Mr. Gleason, but I can assure you he was a superstar. About 70 years ago or so, he was bigger than life. Bigger than life in personality, in stature, in persona. He was a truly great talent, and he had a certain reputation to maintain. And so one day he's out with friends at one of his favorite restaurants. There's another version of this story, by the way, where Jackie was staying at one of his most frequently visited hotels. But either way, as the story goes, Jackie Gleason, he's about to hand a big, fat gratuity to the, to the waiter or to the doorman at the, at the hotel. And, he, and as he does so, he stops and he asks... Tell me, what's the biggest tip you ever got? And the response he gets is, why, sir, $100 is the largest tip I've ever received. And Jackie says, well, I'll tell you what, here's $200. Now, one can only imagine the feeling of receiving a $200 tip back when a brand new car could be had for something like $1,500. I mean, in today's economy, that's like receiving a $5,000, $10,000 tip. Huge, enormous tip. And while he's taking in the smile and the gratitude, Jackie pauses and he asks, By the way, $100, uh, that's pretty generous. 
do you remember who it was that gave you the $100 tip? And the answer he received was, oh, yes, sir, I surely do. It was you, Mr. Gleason. (laughs) Stories like this are great fun. Wearing our pure white robes. It can look something like this. It can look at other forms of great fun, too. It can look like lightly brushing the arm of your spouse and leaning in to gently press a kiss to the cheek. It can look like carving out significant chunks of your day so you can spend some tender moments with your kids. It looks like driving hours and hours to spend time with your hurting, lonely friend. Looks like caring for your elderly parent or taking care of everything that needs to be done to see that your elderly parent is properly cared for. It looks like calling your sibling just to check in. Actually praying with someone rather than merely virtue signaling with those empty words sending positive thoughts and vibes. It looks like sitting silently with a person who doesn't want to talk, but doesn't want to be left alone. Wearing your robe, it also looks like mowing the neighbor's lawn, helping to clear the snow from their drive, uh, checking their mail form when they're out of town, giving their car a jump when their battery's dead. All these kinds of things. They're pretty cool. You want to know what else is cool, even more cool than these sorts of things? Telling the people around you the hard truth out of love for them. Sharing with others the good news of Jesus Christ and helping them to understand their their need of the gospel. When your robe is on, you will invest in discipling others, especially your children. And you will speak kindly to others. Even those you're not trying to pick up for a date. (laughs) And you'll not only study God's word, but you will demonstrate that you've been studying it by the way you carry yourself. And you'll make it specifically clear. You honor your mother and father. And you'll sacrifice. You will give up something that causes you to ache as you let it go. so that others will grow to be more like Christ. That's what it looks like to be wearing your white robe. That's what it looks like to be prepared for Armageddon. I knew a man who didn't look like this in his life. He was married three times and He sacrificed almost nothing of lasting significance anyway for any of these three ladies. His mode of communication was icy silence or booming arguments. He had several children, but he all but disowned all of them as time went on, wanting basically nothing to do with any of them as they grew up. Emotionally, he was unavailable. Now, what a sport was being played on TV, he'd be connected to that. But when real people were in the room, 
even his own kids, even his own grandkids. He was disconnected, distant. As a young man, he disrespected his father as they went back and forth over politics. As a middle-aged man, he disrespected his heavenly father, leaving behind the Christian faith tradition that he had belonged to as a youngster. And as an old man, he continued his selfish ways until the day came that his crooked life was mirrored literally by a crooked body. And then suddenly, he died, almost completely alone. So alone that when it came time to write his obituary, not knowing what to put in there, it was added that he had a dog. He suddenly faced eternity after nearly eight decades of fighting on the wrong side of Armageddon. And that's a micro example. There are many macro examples in the history of the world. Egypt shed the blood of God's servants, and so they were given blood to drink as a people, and then they suffered a bloody death. Even ancient Israel, under idolatrous kings like Ahab, they shed the blood of the prophets, and so God saw to it that their blood would be shed by the Assyrians. And while God used the Assyrians to bring about the, the perishing of the northern kingdom, Israel, the Assyrians did so for the wrong motives. <laughs> and that's quite the wake-up call for us. The Assyrians were powerfully used for the purposes of God. But this didn't mean the Assyrians were on the right side of Armageddon. So God, he could be using you, powerfully even, and you could still be on the wrong side of Armageddon. Is your heart right? Better check. This survey of history could also include Persia and what is recorded in the book of Esther. And Greece, too, with her mythological pantheon of false gods and the Maccabean revolt, revolt, and also Jerusalem, rejecting her Messiah, bringing about the destruction of the city in A.D. 70. And let's not forget the fall of the cruel and pagan Rome and the persecutions of the Huguenots leading to the horrors of the French Revolution and the infamous bigotry of Spain, home of the Inquisition and the Stuart dynasty of England driving out tens of thousands of godly men and women only to then have their turn come. And America with her sin of slavery, helping to bring about the war between the states. And the worldwide perversion of sex trafficking, enslavement by drug kingpins, systematic genocide of the most vulnerable, most timely people who are utterly defenseless. And just look at the world that's given us. When ruminating over the applications of Revelation 16, 16, we come to realize everyone faces Armageddon. Good versus evil. Reaping what's been sown. Entire societies face it. Individuals face it on the personal level. 
And it's a daily battle for believers even. Will I serve God or will I serve my selfishness? That's what's represented by Armageddon. This single word in English. In Hebrew, it's actually two words that are pushed together. Har-mageddon. You'll actually see it written this way in the NASB and a few other English translations. It means Mount of Megiddo. Har is mount, and Megiddon, it comes from a root word, gadad, which means to cut off, as in slaughtered, sliced and diced. So a rather wooden translation, it would be something like the Mount of Slaughter, or Slaughter Mountain. It's a rather violent name. (laughs) I wonder why. Well, we in fact know why. This area is named after the ancient Canaanite city of Megiddo, which sat at the side of the Carmel Ridge of Hills, which is home to Mount Carmel. And this was a highly strategic location, providing a view of the mountain pass between the the coastal plain and the valley of Estrelon. And this valley is a huge plain, and so it was was a critically important, strategically important caravan route. It was like an international highway for the ancients. It connected Egypt to Babylon and to the other uh, great kingdoms of Mesopotamia. And because of its strategic value, there were many competing interests who were significantly motivated to control it. And so, as you can imagine, over time, it came to be known as the Battlefield of Palestine. Gigantic armies could assemble there. I mean, we're talking about truly gigantic armies. The legendary General Napoleon, he saw it, and he called this valley the greatest battlefield he had ever seen. So it's pretty famous. And if you've read the Old Testament, then you have heard about this battleground before today. Even if, as I say those words, you're like, "Eh, I'm not so sure that I remember. This area, which belonged to the tribe of Manasseh in Galilee, uh, approximately 60 miles north of Jerusalem, supposedly people could walk that distance in like two days back then. They must have been better shape than we are today. I don't know. (laughs) It is the, uh, it's the region where famously Elijah defeated the wicked prophets of Baal. We read about that in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the place where Barak went with Deborah to prevail over the Canaanites in Judges chapter 4. It's the area where Gideon's victory took place over the Midianites. That's in Judges chapter 7. It's also where King Josiah of Judah received his fatal wound, which is recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 23. See, I told you, you knew about this place already. And all this is pretty interesting to me. You know, what else is pretty interesting? There is no mountain in existence anywhere called Harmageddon. In the Old Testament, we we read about the waters of Megiddo. The Old Testament also mentions the plain of Megiddo, which makes a lot of sense because the dominant tomographical feature there of that particular spot on the planet, as I mentioned, is this broad plain. But there is no Mount Megiddo. That feels kind of strange. Stranger still is that the scene of God's final battle, it is identified in Joel in chapter 3, not as Megiddo, but as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. 
But we could try to explain that away, saying, you know, that could just be a symbolic name there because Jehoshaphat, in Hebrew, it means judgment of God. So maybe it's just a, a phrase to, to make the point there in Joel. Okay, but then what about Zechariah, chapters 12 and 14? There, Jerusalem, not Megiddo, is where the pagan nations gather for war against the Lord and his people. So what in the world's going on here? Did the Apostle John get something wrong as he recorded his vision? Well, not hardly. <laughs> there are at least a couple of things that will help to highlight what Revelation is intending to communicate to us here. So first I want us to note, John draws our attention to the fact that he is providing a Hebrew name. He goes out of his way to make this point. He did something similar, actually. You might remember back in chapter 9, he pointed to the Greek and the Hebrew name for the destroyer. Remember, it was Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek. And so this verse here in chapter 16, it's cueing us as the reader to look for symbolic connection with the Hebrew scriptures. And when we do this, we find that the word mountains can symbolically mean nations. Or governments. For example, it was on Mount Sinai that God gave the law governing the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Those are just a couple of examples. They're all they're replete throughout the Old Testament. So now let's take everything I've said and put it together, the you know, last 10 minutes or so of what I've had to say, and, uh, and see how this all connects. So to review, the place name that John gives us for this vision is Har-Mageddon. Har, in translation, directly means mountain, and it alludes to nations. The root word for Megadon most directly means cut off, and it alludes to slaughter. So we piece all the symbolism together, and we end up with a word, Armageddon, that means the place where the cut-off nations are slaughtered. I find this to be completely satisfying. <laughs> However, I should mention that there are some, including one very notable theologian named Meredith Klein, who died not that long ago. He died earlier this century. They don't achieve the same level of satisfaction in working out the puzzle the way uh, that I do. Meredith Klein, he thought that the uh, transliteration of the Hebrew word uh, for Harmageddon was mistaken, and so he altered the letters slightly, and he came up with a different word that means mount of assembly. Now, making changes like he did, it can sound a little bit nuts, very dangerous, not recommended to change the letters of the words in the Bible, but that's what he did. And you know what? At first blush, uh, he makes an interesting case. I think he's wrong, <laughs> but at least he's wrong in an interesting way. <laughs> so what do I mean that his scheme is interesting? And I'm mentioning this because it's not just Meredith Klein. There are a lot of people who would agree with this view. And so you might be exposed to it. I wanted to put it out there so you understand what that view is. So by tinkering with the lettering that we have in John's text, Klein ended up drawing some, as you can imagine, new dots. 
And so then he connected these new dots, and it turns out he had drawn a picture of a demonic city that he called the Mount of Gathering, and that this Antichrist counterfeit city stood in opposition to the authentic, true Mount Zion, the, the, the holy city, God's holy city of Jerusalem. Like I said, it's interesting. I don't think it's correct. <laughs> but at the end of the day, actually, it doesn't really change anything, at least nothing that's of ultimate importance, which actually begs the question of why Meredith Klein and those like him go through all the rigmarole and jump through all the hoops that they do. Because the reality remains that deceivers of the world gather their rebel forces thinking that they can lay siege to the church and that they can defeat Christ's pride. But it's foolhardy for anyone to think that the Lord's holy soldiers can suffer a final, ultimate, permanent defeat because the Lord's sheep share in the Lamb's victory. And that's a victory already won. So today, once more, we have seen some of the benefits of recognizing that the Revelation is a book chock full of symbols, and so it is best to interpret it symbolically most of the time. And so here's a cautionary word. Anyone who would attempt to identify in chapter 16 some particular national armies that we might see displayed on the international world stage today, I fear that they might be behaving as do those little girls we see at the youth soccer matches. You've ever been to one of these youth sporting events and you, you know what I'm talking about. It seems like there's always this one little girl who's off in the corner of the pitch, you know, or she's spinning around, head up in the sky, <laughs> head in the clouds, literally, kind of thing. Or maybe she's got her head down, diligently searching the blades of grass under her feet, trying to find that perfect four-leaf clover. Or maybe she's trying to find a daisy she can pick to give to her mom later after the, the, the match is over. But meanwhile, the game action is taking place way down the other end of the field. I mean, she's on the team, she's supposedly in the game, but she's not really in the game. Not truly, anyway. And Christ's followers, we want to be in the game. And John, he's showing us here that in, in beautiful, intricate fashion, that being in the game, under, we understand that this game is a spiritual battle. It's not really about the armies of China or Russia or NATO or the UN or, or anything like that. This is about the servants of God squaring off against the enemies of God. Are you God's servant or are you God's enemy? With apologies to William Shakespeare, that is the question. And when you truly answer that question correctly, well, then you know the answer to whether you are part of the side that eternally wins or the side that eternally loses at Armageddon. Let's pray. Father, we adore you. We know that you are a holy, righteous God, and we are so thankful that you have a plan and that your plan and your purposes have included calling us to yourself. We are so grateful and thankful for that. We ask that you would help us to press into your word, to be diligent in studying the scriptures and applying them to our lives so that we are ready, so that we are consistently wearing our white robes, 
that we are preparing for Armageddon and that we will be standing on the right side of the battle. We know that you are victorious and you're such a wondrous God to share that victory with those who are called to yourself. The world is a nasty, distracting place. The enemy is seeking to pull our attention away from you and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would stay focused. We would keep our heart and our mind and our intentions diligently focused upon things that are heavenly, recognizing that there is a spiritual war being waged and that we are to be in that game as joyful warriors, knowing that the victory is already won because Christ died the perfect death and demonstrated his victory over even death with his resurrection, and that he is ruling even today after ascending to your right-hand Father and has sent his spirit to indwell us as your people. Help us to share this good news with those around us. It is in our Lord and Savior, our King's name that we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so I'm going to shut down the stream here. Again, if you'd like to visit us online, you can connect with all of our sermons, which are housed at sermonaudio.com as well, through our website, householdoffaithinchrist.com. That's householdoffaithinchrist.com. Until next time, God bless.